Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. What happens when you don't go to the gym for three weeks? Don't be too hard on yourself and say, oh, well, I guess I'm really crap at exercise, so I won't do it ever again. You just go, okay, I missed it for three weeks time to get back on the wagon. Sometimes it's a little bit about taking the emotion out of it. That is Dr. Brody O'Donnell, and this is the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. Ginsburg podcast. I am Osher Ginsburg behind the wheel of a rental car driving under a tunnel underneath the city of Brisbane recording this on my iPhone and this is episode I think 184 with Dr. Bridie O'Donnell. You can find her on Twitter at B-R-I-D-I-E underscore O-D. Did I miss my exit for the airplane for the airport? Shit I hope not. Sorry I really don't worry I'm on hands free. It's fine. I'm on hands free. I'm not both hands are on the wheel officer friendly i promise you but i am in a tunnel brisbane's great it's got so many tunnels now i wish sydney would build more tunnels because they're just good you're just in a tunnel and then you come out the other side and boom you're at the airport uh yeah so i'm recording this in brisbane it's uh, about 10 past four on a sunday afternoon i've been here all weekend uh just um being with family um i did want to say a big thank you to everybody that sent through a podsy uh, which is a picture taken uh, with the phone you're listening to this on right now of whatever it is you're looking at right now. So not, if you're driving like me, don't bloody use your phone to take a photo. Uh, but if you're doing anything else, driving, walking, cleaning, caring, biking, hiking, climbing, other things that end in ing, uh, just um, take a photo. Email it to me, send osher email at gmail.com or tag me on Instagram or Twitter. It's always good to see what you're looking at when you're listening to the show. It helps me get to know you, uh, helps us all get to know each other, as in us, as in people who all listen to the show or make this show. That's me and three other people that make it and everybody else that listens. Um, so, yeah, I'm up in Brisbane. I'm, uh, yeah, visiting some family. It's been a, a, an interesting week. You'll hear me talk about my week with Bridie, uh, Dr. Bridie. Um, I hope I didn't push her too far into the territory of giving me a free consultation. Oh, it's always a problem when you've got friends who are doctors. You do punish them. What's this spot? Have you seen this lump before? Can you feel that? Should this much goo be coming out of that sore? All these sorts of things. Don't ask doctors that unless you're in the podcast with them. I hope I didn't push the boundaries. Bridie, feel free to invoice me. Um, but yeah, you'll hear me talk to Audrey. Uh, you'll hear me talk to Bridie about uh, what's going on in, uh, in my life this week. Uh, speaking of Audrey, she was most definitely one she she does have to pull the reins up on me a bit because i i can get if i haven't worked out for a while i can get all gung-ho and go that's it i'm gonna go run eight k's there's nothing happening 
and she'll be like, uh, no, you're fucking not because you were sick as a dog last week and if you go and run 8Ks, you're just going to get sick as a dog again. So pull your head in. You're 43. You're not a young man anymore. So just do some bloody yoga or something. And so I did some bloody yoga or something and uh, everything was a lot better. Uh, but I hope your week was good no matter what you did. Uh, I've been up in Brisbane uh, being with family, which is always really nice. Everybody's up here. My brother, his partner, um, my other brother, his, uh, his wife. Every, it's always good seeing everyone. Um, but I do miss my family back in Sydney. So I'm driving to the airport at the moment in one of Brisbane's incredibly beautifully well-built motorways. Thanks to everybody that did support the show on Patreon this week. Some new supporters came through. Patreon.com slash Osher, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash O-S-H-E-R. Without you, I can't make the show. Without you, I can't pay my audio producer, Andy Ma, or my production coordinator, Haley Van Spania. Both Andy and Haley work very hard to make sure this show comes to air every week, even when I am behind the wheel of a rental car on hands-free recording the intro as I drive to not miss my plane. They do make sure the show comes to you every single week. And so please help me pay them and help me make sure the show happens every week for as little... You can, don't, you can pledge as much money as you like, but for as little as five bucks, you get access to exclusive episodes that uh, will come to you in your inbox uh, once a month. The new one is coming out with Quentin Kennahan. That'll come out this week. And keep your, um, keep your eyes on your inbox because I will uh, send that email out uh, early in the week. And just keep an eye on it. Sometimes it doesn't pop in the normal inbox. It can sometimes go in the, in the all mail or the, you know, just check your spam folder because it's coming from somewhere I don't normally send it. Um, but yeah, you'll have that new uh, in your inbox uh, this week and there'll be a new exclusive episode uh, next month as there is every single month which you get when you sponsor the show on Patreon. Let me tell you about my guest. She's been on the show before. Dr. Bridie O'Donnell is my guest today. You can find her on Twitter at B-R-I-D-I-E underscore O-D. Bridie underscore O-D. You'll find her on Twitter and um, if you do hear anything that you like that she says in the show you can just ping her and um, tell her that you uh, that you heard it. Uh, Dr. Bridie and I have known each other for quite some time. We both grew up in Brisbane together. We knew each other in high school. She went on to become a fancy, fancy doctor and a, and a professional cyclist and a world record holding cyclist. And I just stayed working in radio and television, but she went on to you know, be the best in the world at stuff. She's a very smart woman and has some great things to say about uh, elite sport, about being motivated and staying motivated to staying healthy. I do push the relationship a bit by asking her for what does sound like a bit of a free consult um, when I uh, talk to her about my recent weight gain, uh, my, medic, my meds-related weight gain. But uh, she's uh, a fascinating woman to speak with. I'm grateful I could bring this conversation to you because it's not me talking with someone I've just met and the two of us getting to know that guest at the same time. This is me and my friend, Dr. Bridie having a conversation and you being a part of it, which I'm really happy for. Bridie and her partner Nick came to our wedding and we had a big dance and it was really great. And I'm grateful that, you know, someone who's in my life uh, like Bridie and, and Audrey in my life like Bridie, that we can have a conversation and, and bring it to you because it's, it's nice to be able to share. If there is anything that you hear in this show that gets you motivated, by all means, let Bridie know. Send her a little note on Twitter. She'd get a kick out of it. You also follow her on Instagram. She's got a great Instagram. Enjoy this conversation. We have it over Skype because if I didn't have Skype, I don't know if I'd be able to get a show out to you every week. So I hope you don't mind that it is over Skype. Um, enjoy this conversation with Dr. Bridie O'Donnell. How are you, Bridie? I'm very well. How are you? I'm good, good. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. I know it's over Skype, um, but... I'd rather have a recording of the conversation this way than miss out the opportunity to speak with you because, unfortunately, due to scheduling, I'm just not able to get to Melbourne to visit you like I did last time. Outrageous. Outrageous. Uh, how, <laughs> firstly, how are you? Uh, we haven't spoken on this podcast for, goodness, like two years, two and a bit, maybe three. Mm -hmm. um, mm. How, how well, are you going? I'm going well. What has happened since I spoke to you last on the extremely successful hundreds of episodes. Like, seriously, you've done so well. And I love listening to your podcast. There are so many fascinating people you get to meet. 
I'm grateful. I'm grateful you say that. And but the the, the thing that uh, kind of puzzled me was all I had to do was do it once a week. <coughs> all I had to do was do it once a week, and and we're nearly at two hundred, which pretty is cool. pretty intense when when you think about it. Um, mm. It does it does bring me a lot of um, mental. Uh, peace, being able to have these kind of conversations at least once a week. Um, so, on a in a selfish way, it's it's been really helpful. It uh, financially, it's only just recently been able to sustain itself with the Patreon, though, because um, there's right. no way there's no way I was able to keep going with um, radio as well as TV. And um, but mm. thankfully, the people that listen support it enough that I can um, I can keep doing it. This is good. Which is uh, which is really really great. Are you still uh, are you still doctoring, Bridie? I am. Um, I've still got the same job. I've got a another job as well that I do a day a week at a breast cancer clinic. Yeah, which is a really really fantastic job. So I see women who've had breast cancer. They've had treatment, and they're now coming for their annual review, as every woman who's had cancer will do. And they have their mammogram and their ultrasound and they come back and see their surgeon and their oncologist and their radiotherapist and all those people. And the surgeon I work for is terrific. She's got kajillions of patients and she became kind of almost overwhelmed with the number of follow-ups she had to do. So she hired me knowing that I had a, I was particularly annoying to people about their diet and their exercise and their sleep <laughs> and their lifestyle behaviour. So these terrific women come in and I say, you're doing great. You're four years post-cancer. Now let's talk about how much activity you're getting. And they'd roll their eyes. And sometimes I demonstrate push-ups on the floor to 80-year-old women while their 80-year-old husbands laugh. But, you know, <laughs> you're never too late to learn. <laughs> now, I do want to get to a bit of that because that's kind of like the main thing I wanted to talk to you about today. But I, I, it would be remiss if we didn't cover the incredible athletic feat of achievement that you've achieved since uh, the last time we spoke on this podcast in that you were for, goodness, was it six weeks? The, uh, the <laughs> too world, short, too short. Too short. The world record holder for the women's one-hour indoor track record. Mm. And you trained so hard for it. Um, you... What was it 68.66? Was that it? 46.88. 40, 68, I'd be, a, I would be a robot. All right. Okay. Okay. 46.88 um, kilometers. Yeah. In one hour. Yep. In, indoors. And I was grateful enough. I was grateful to be able to go and watch you do it down in Adelaide at the velodrome there. And what completely astonished me was the incredible amounts of science that went into what you were doing and mm. the amount of caloric intake versus the aero, aero position on your bike versus calculating for the speed of the wind that you were whipping up so that in the last few laps you were actually getting wind assistance because you were creating some sort of vortex within the velodrome. Shit, was I? Yeah. It didn't feel like it in those last. I needed to create more turbulence, I feel. <clears throat> yeah, it was a feat of science, definitely. And I was fortunate to benefit from the successes and failures, if you want to use that word, of other people who had broken the hour record, both men and women in the last, in the year or so before. So it was an event that was enormous in the 70s and 80s for men and famously was, was set by a, a guy called Moser at altitude after blood doping, you know, because if there's anything that's great about illegal doping in cycling is that physiologists and scientists and coaches love it. I mean, we've seen this with Lance Armstrong's famous coach that from a scientific point of view, the idea of using performance-enhancing drugs with the best athlete in the world would give anyone a hard-on. And the idea so of, with uh, Moza, you know, they were all there talking in the 70s about when should we give him his bag of blood to increase his red cells and how can he break the world record and all those sorts of things. And fast forward probably two decades and men and women professional cyclists were probably too busy racing on the road and doing things like Olympics and World Championships to bother with a rather quirky event like the hour record. 
<clears throat> and then the men's hour record started to generate more interest. Athletes were retiring. Jens Voigt, famously a German cyclist renowned for his grit and determination. He did it just before he retired. And then Australia's Jack Bobridge made an attempt and spectacularly didn't break it um, and nearly broke his body in the process. Mm. And then Rowan Dennis, another Australian cyclist, broke it. And then finally everybody everybody's sort of favourite or most hated or loathed or most, um, I suppose, infamous British gold medalist and Tour de France winner, Bradley Wiggins, set a, a gold standard for the men's hour record that may not be broken for some time. And he's kind of that consummate cyclist. He's been a track cyclist. He then became a road cyclist. He won the Tour de France. He won Olympic gold medal. Uh, he has the best sideburns um, and the greatest funding from British cycling. And all of that came together and he really smashed it. It really it really was like the opening scenes of uh, the opening montage of Six Million Dollar Man because uh, everything they – I guess when you're at that level of cycling, everything that – you can get away with, you do get away with. But as far as doping's concerned, I do remember that after you finished the record, the moment you stepped off the bike, there was someone hovering around you that would not let you out of their sight and they were within two metres of your person. Everyone's coming up to congratulate you. They're making sure that no one's handing you anything or passing you anything. Was that the doping person who was making sure that you were following protocol? Yeah, absolutely. So as part of trying to make an attempt on a world record, you need to be a member of the biological passport that's provided by the UCI, the Cycling Union. Um, as a female athlete, I had to pay for that privilege. Uh, so that cost me 7500 euros just to allow people to come and wake me up at six in the morning and get my blood and urine, which I'm more than happy to do. I want a clean record and I'm a clean athlete, but it is a bit of a kick in the ovaries to have to pay for that <laughs> when the blokes don't have to pay for it. Um, that being said, it's not that they don't have to pay, but they are probably covered by their professional world tour teams. Right. So they don't see those costs. But you were distinctly, uh, at the time, you have been a professional cyclist in your past, but at the time you were an amateur cyclist and you held the record for an unfortunately painfully short amount of weeks before it was broken by a professional, correct? Yeah, it was broken by a professional and she broke it at altitude. And I know this sounds like I'm being small-minded, trust me, uh, doing an event for an hour at altitude um, increases your ability to generate more velocity for the same effort. The air is thinner. So I suppose I still hold the sea level world record. And what will happen, I think, with Bradley Wiggins is that someone will break Bradley Wiggins' record and they'll break that at altitude as well. Impressively, he set the men's hour world record um, at sea level in the UK. So to go faster, uh, it will require someone to go to thinner air, perhaps Mexico or Colorado, as Evelyn Stevens, who's now retired, the woman who has the women's hour record, did. So it, it's frustrating. I mean, she's, it is a different, um, we're of different calibre. She's a greater athlete than I am. And it was a great performance by her to break it. Um, it doesn't, it's frustrating to not hold the record, but in a way you have to think of world records as things that are there to be broken. They're yeah. actually not there to be held. And for me, as you alluded to earlier, really the victory and the satisfaction came from the process. It was the learning how to ride on a track, the learning about what I needed to do, the mindset and the mindfulness required to punch out an hour at exactly the right pacing. Tell me, and, and speaking of the, the, the victory, there was, there was a moment and it was almost as if uh, We Are the Champions was playing in the background. There was a moment where you uh, sweaty, just completely drenched, somewhat hollow from the dehydration, um, surrounded by people who were patting you on the back. Uh, you know, Olympians were there and Amirs was there. It was a great celebration. And you got on the mic in your victory speech and you pointed to this glass box <laughs> up in the rafters and you said there were people there are people watching this right now that said I'd never amount to anything or something along those lines what what was that about um i was specifically talking about the women's road coach the the um the head coach for the women's road program who had sat me down in 2011, in the middle of the year when I was racing for a professional team in, in Italy and I was hoping to get selected for the end of the year's world championships. And he said to me that I was too old, too fat, too slow, not possessing of enough talent or any remarkable quality that would mean I would ever be selected for Australia again. And I said to him, well, I, 
respectfully, I have to disagree with you, (laughs) of course. Uh, I was devastated to hear that, more so that not that you believe that those things are true, but when the person in charge tells you that he believes they're to be true, what he's basically saying is, so I've decided that I've put a line through your name and you won't be selected again. And if you, everyone who's ever competed in elite sport knows that it's never just the best people that go. It's also the people that have ticked other boxes in terms of their relationship with powers that be. And so in no way am I suggesting that Australian road teams in those years following would have been enhanced by my presence. Because, of course, everyone who doesn't get selected believes that selection processes are corrupt and dodgy and bollocks. And everyone who does get selected says, oh, no, I think selection's pretty fair. No, I think it does. They pick the right people. <laughs> so you, have, you can't argue perspective. And I think for someone who's a head coach, if um, I'm, I will do him the favour of seeing things from his perspective, he, he's trying to make medals. That's how he gets paid. And he's trying to see it's like he's ranked everybody in like a likelihood of winning a medal competition. And I'm not on that top ten list. So he thinks it just would be easier if she went away. So if I tell her that she's SHIT, she'll go away, makes my life less complicated, less emails in my inbox, less girls putting their hands up going, ooh, 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 could you please check my results and let me know if you think I might be selected. Um, that being said, girls like me and men like me all over the world are getting told these things on a regular basis and it breaks your fucking heart, I have to say, that you put all this effort in and you believe you're not at your best yet. And the person who decides if you're any good has said, already decided, there's no future for you. At the time, what did that do to you? I was devastated. And I rang my coach from Italy and I just said, that's it, I'm never going to get selected again. And he said, well, it's not over, you know, obviously you get the result. But it's very hard. Also, I think it depends what sort of athlete you are. I think that um, there's a lot of rhetoric and perhaps mythology around the idea that if people tell you you can't, then you can and you show them and you turn that stuff around. In my experience, when you're living away from home in a foreign country and you don't speak the language and you've got no money and you have no power, that's not a very empowering state of mind. I don't, I don't thrive on being told I'm a piece of shit and I'm going to prove people wrong. I actually pr- thrive on proving myself right. I thrive on people saying, this is good, you can do better. Or you want this, here are the steps required. But I don't need someone to tell me I'm no good so that I can prove them wrong. That's sort of not how my brain works. And so you've, you've transitioned a lot now to uh, more of a, a team management role when it comes to, comes to your cycling. Do you try and be the team manager that you never had? <laughs> Absolutely. I do. I really try and be very straight with the athletes that are in the team. I, I'm honest with them. I tell them when they're great. I thank them for their hard work. Um, I acknowledge their weaknesses and say we need you to do this better tomorrow in tomorrow's race if you can or these riders are here to support you or to outline to them the importance of their role while their role may not be winning the race or it may involve pulling out of a stage that their supportive role for our GC or our leader of the team is absolutely integral to her performance so all the things and I have had some good directors and good coaches but um, generally yeah professional road cycling is a brutal um, soul-destroying environment so if you can do your best to provide that great support and leadership and I, I, I'm sure that my style worked for lots of the girls in the team and I'm sure it didn't work for some of them I'm sure some of them want to be told they're awesome no matter what and so I might not have been the right person for them but we I was fortunate enough to have this great rider in our team, Ruth Corset, who's been a, a fantastic road cyclist in Australia. She's a married mother of two who was still competing at a very high level here and incredibly tenacious and determined athlete. And so we were fortunate that that would help motivate other women in the team. Do you see that sort of, uh, you know, work off, off the bike to be in your future as, as you go forward? Um. In some ways I do. I, I think also um, what I'm noticing now, particularly as I'm just kind of taking a bit of a lull in competition, which is really nice, I'm just staying fit but not setting any major goals, is that um, being the best doctor I can be actually takes quite a lot of energy. And I know we've all been to doctors where it's clear that that doctor we've gone to see is probably exhausted or mm. cranky or overworked or resentful. 
and it's not a very valuable experience for either of you. And um, particularly lately, there's been, I think, better conversations in and around the mental health of health practitioners. Uh, recently, a, a terrible and tragic death of a gastroenterologist in Brisbane, the city where I was trained as a doctor, um, whose wife made very public uh, the sources of his stress in the lead up to his suicide and was not at all ashamed or embarrassed about the fact that he had chosen to end, end his life this way. She was devastated. But it was a really fantastic, I suppose, teachable moment about professionals and particularly healthcare professionals and the stress that if you're doing it right and doing it as best you can, it sometimes takes a toll on your own mental health. I'm not suggesting my my job is as important and challenging as that gentleman's, um, but I love the jobs that I have and I spend a lot of time with the patients that I do. And that's actually wonderful but exhausting. Being a really good listener is exhausting. Uh, yeah, but I mean, you know you know this, but just to, to remind folks, both my parents were doctors and there's definitely an energetic exchange that happens when you show up, um, my mum, she's retired now, but she would, she would often talk about the, the, the mystical power of the medicine man that the, you know, the idea that mum was always very, very strong on the placebo effect. And like she said, I, I could make people feel better just listening to them for 10 minutes and then telling them to take some Panadols, um, which is essentially a fairly benign painkiller. But if there was nothing that she could do for them, if it was something viral or something like that, as long as she listened and went, yes, it must hurt. Yes, I know those shakes are if, if he and the aches and pains do hurt. Yes, I know. It must be awful. The person walked out of there feeling like heaps better. But at the end of the day, mum would come home and she'd just be drained because she's taking that energy on. Do you find that too? Mm, absolutely, I do. And one of the things I've really grappled with recently, and this is again on me and, and my ability to manage myself and my personal uh, self-compassion, is that it's sometimes hard to switch out of that mode of the caring problem solver. And you can be talking to friends about their challenging marriage breakup or their challenging issue with their teenage child and you start asking questions. You say, and so what do you think is working? What's not working? Why are you doing it that way? Have you thought about this? And then you come away from what kind of started as a friendly catch-up um, again, feeling a bit like you were a source of um, common sense and insight and, and non-judgmental health information, and that can be that can be a hard one too. And I'm sure psychologists and psychiatrists really uh, have to work on their boundaries about that. And I was talking to a colleague of mine, and she said, "Firstly, you need to see it as um, flattering. If people want to confide in you and ask your advice, great." But it is about your ability to say, that sounds complicated. I think you should see someone with more expertise than me. Or um, this isn't really an area I can go, I can help you with as much as you need. Or something like that without telling them to rack off. I've had, I've had both sides of that coin. I've had, uh, unfortunately, more one than the other. I've had psychologists who, and it's unfortunately been psychologists every time, who are out of their depth and... Uh, two, unfortunately, crossed some b very, very strict boundaries um, and there was two big boundary breaches there, which wasn't fun. Um, but then on the other hand, I had one who, when I moved back to Australia, she said, listen, what you're describing to me involves uh, an area that I'm not experienced in. I'm referring you to someone else. So rather than try and tackle it, rather than try and muddle through it, rather than just take my money, she was really kind and said, look, it's not, I can't help you with this one. I'll send you to someone else. Going back to boundary breaches, I can, so, I can really see how that can happen when you, when you forget what your job is because mm. you can be sitting across from someone and 30 or 40 minutes into the conversation, it's very intimate. I mean, they're telling you about their weaknesses. They're, I spoke with a patient last week who's clearly – um, he'd come to see me for a health check. This is the job that I do. It's a broad healthcare assessment. But what we kept coming back to, his lifestyle and behaviour, was in and around serious alcohol abuse. And just as an aside, I'm sure you know this, I mean, al alcohol consumption in, in kind of middle-class, middle-aged people is a huge issue. And I'm seeing it on a daily basis and people are very defensive about it. And you'll say to them, well, you know, a standard drink is 100 mils of alcohol. So you say there's three or four glasses in a bottle of wine. Let me tell you there's not. <laughs> and they look at you like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 
And what I've discovered over the last four or five years of this job is I end up finding up a lot of information about people. I say less. I offer a completely non-judgmental face. And men share. I mean, a lot of the time men don't go, go to doctors. They think they're coming for a heart check and then they just yeah. stuff comes out of them. So I guess what I was trying to say is that then you realize you're having this conversation about stuff with a person you don't know who's telling you all of this information. And then suddenly you know these things about someone who, and I'm sure you've had this, is a person of interest. Is yeah. a, And that can, if I didn't remember that I'm sitting in a clinical room and I'm there because he's paying me for my information and expertise, I could think, oh, we're, we're sharing stories. And I'm not trying to defend the behaviour of a psychologist, but clearly sometimes when they've, they've occurred, that person feels like they've established some sort of intimacy with you. Yeah, which is uh, was, was what happened with one of them who who started going on my Instagram and going, oh, it's so great to see you doing the things we talked about. Like, no, you don't write that on my Instagram. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it wasn't That's great. That's boundary explosion. Yeah, it wasn't great. That, that. It wasn't great. But uh, what is something, and just, you know, for you, and I'm sure you do take care of this, there was um, my uh, definitely my psychiatrist and my, my psychologist, they each have once a week, they have a, um, a one-hour check-in with, uh, like it's almost like a mentoring thing where they check above them and they run through cases and they talk about potential issues and, and, and things like that, which uh, certainly certainly helps them and it keeps them accountable. I think psychologists and psychiatrists specifically are very good at doing that. I think physicians are notoriously bad at it. Um, <laughs> usually uh, I'm too busy for that, man. I'm too busy making money, uh, you know, looking after my dog, my kids, my partner, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, I'm fortunate or I'm smart enough or stupid enough, whatever it is, to have had good relationships with psychologists through sport. And, you know, I used a great the services of a great psychologist um, in the lead up to the hour to work on mindfulness and strategies. How do I control my brain for 60 minutes of um, intense physical effort and or, and or how do I manage decisions involved with sport or my psyche? And so that's transitioned over into my normal life too. And, you know, I've talked to this um, psychologist about those issues, about how do I manage my personal boundaries, how do I not get engaged in giving people free medical advice when I'm writing, when I'm at the shops, you know, when I'm in a work environment where uh, <clears throat> I do some work on a some on the project occasionally and the people who work in, in that um, environment are fabulous. But as you know, I mean, if you're an accountant, people ask you about your taxes. If yeah. you're getting your makeup done, sometimes the makeup artist asks, asks you what she should do about her kid's asthma. And that just sounds like a flippant occasional chat, but sometimes it happens 10 times a day. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I remember my folks always, when, whenever we go on holidays, they're like, kids, don't tell anyone we're doctors. We're on holiday. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. <laughs> we don't want, anyone, don't want anyone knocking on the door or complaining about a sore elbow. Um, but which has, which did, did happen just to rewind for a second. Yeah. You, I remember when you were preparing for the, um, the hour, uh, record that there was an, you were, you, you might've, you might've minimized a little there, but there was an enormous focus on keeping your brain in check and keeping your brain quiet. What kind of techniques did you use during training and particularly in the last 48 72, 24 hours? So 
One of the uh, we did like a trial about six weeks beforehand where I did forty five minutes at the pace I was going to try and hold, and it was pretty bad. Um, bad negative negatively, as in uh, the outcome wasn't ideal, but the circumstances, the bloke who was filling in for my coach the cues he was supposed to give me, things just didn't work. It was about like a bad dress rehearsal for a, a good opening night, if you like. Yeah. Um, and I came away from that experience feeling pretty fearful and negative about my possibility of breaking the hour. I spoke to um, my psychologist about this and he was great. He said to me, okay, so physically how did you feel? And I said, yeah, not that great. It was cold and my legs felt really ordinary and da da da, da. And then he said, and mentally, what were you thinking? And I said, well, after about 10 minutes, I started that normal uh, script of, God, you're a piece of shit. God, and why are you even doing this? See, this is why you're not a world champion already because you're no good, you know, <laughs> really helpful self-talk. And so I, um, he said to me, so, so tell me this, you know, if you start the hour record in January and you feel physically bad, are you going to stop? Are you going to slow down off the pace that you're setting? And I said, no, 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 no. And he said, okay, what if you feel good, uh, physically amazing? Are you going to ride harder in the first 10 or 15 minutes? Um, and I said, no way. I'm going to stick to the plan because an hour is all about pacing. And he said, right, so what we've concluded is that how you feel physically is completely irrelevant. And I said, yeah, yeah, it is. And he said, so who cares how you feel? doesn't matter. And, I mean, what a great example of mindfulness. He said, you know, we work on cues so you can say, oh, there's sweat running down my face from my head because of this helmet. It's running into my eyes and making my eyes sting. And then, of course, I can say, oh, well, back to the writing. Oh, my legs are hurting or it's hurting on my hoo-ha because I'm sitting on a damn saddle for 60 minutes in one position. Oh, well, I knew this would happen. Get back to it. And keep using the cues that we did, which were things around leaning into the bends and keeping my head down and being relentless about my position and thinking about feet at this cue for words to keep my pedals moving. So that was a really reassuring thing. And, and too often in cycling, we think about how do I feel? If I feel good, I'll attack and I'll win. If I feel tired, I'll wait. You know, so actually tuning into our sensations, as we call them, is, is sort of something we talk about as athletes all the time. And yet... This was going to have no – I couldn't choose to do the hour the next day if it didn't work. The whole thing was being live streamed all over the world. I had no out clause. So it was actually a really release type uh, thought process to have. It's like, oh, well, it doesn't matter how I feel. So that was, that was your – like in, in the same way that you are methodical in your physical actions, you are methodical with your, your brain's responses to the negative thoughts. Absolutely. And look – Again, then the, the worst, uh, a more challenging day happened literally the, the day before. So 24 hours, I, I flew over to Adelaide from Melbourne. Adelaide was hot as all get out in January. And the Airbnb accommodation we had, which was geographically brilliant, was <laughs> climactically terrible. And the air conditioning wasn't working. And I was there with myself, um, a friend and my coach. And we were all staying in this sort of four-bedroom house. And it was as hot as Hades. And we'd gone and done a training session in the in the velodrome the 48 hours before. And the bloke coordinating the event was behaving. He was agitated. He was tense about me breaking the record, there were a lot of officials coming. He had a lot of pressure on himself, so he was doing that thing that people do where they just blurt it all out onto you. So I had a bad night's sleep, and then the day before on the Thursday, I felt terrible. I felt so fearful. Again, that self-talk coming through of thinking, you can't do this. What were you thinking? What were you thinking trying to break this record? Everyone, and that idea too of projecting forward, you know, you know about this, that, oh, I'm a, I'm a piece of shit, and everyone's going to, I'm going to fail, and then everyone's going to say, well, of course. Of course she didn't do it, as though you know, that imposter syndrome stuff. And, you know, I spoke to you that day, which was incredibly helpful, the idea of just acknowledging that those voices are there but not buying into them. Don't that's – that's one version. It's a version of the story. But what about the other version where I just try it anyway, where I just show up and try? It, it is it's very interesting to acknowledge as well, and I was talking to my friend Ruben about this, uh, Dr. Ruben Meerman, he's a proper scientist and everything, um, and he was his, – his view on these things, as we talk a lot about my, my headspace, he's like, don't ever forget those fears and those things that make you worried about the world, they're the things that helped your ancestors survive. Constantly projecting negative outcomes onto unknowns is what helped keep you from being eaten by animals in the bush. 
I'm not going to walk yeah, yeah. in the. Sh- I'm not going to walk down the, the the dark, you know, shady part of the forest because that's where my friend Jub Jub got eaten. Uh, I'm going to walk over there in the clearing so I can see anything coming at me because I'm afraid of things I can't see. And as our world has gotten safer, our brains haven't really um, evolved, uh, you know, with without that thing in there. So it 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 does service this. It does serve us this thing in our head that projects a negative outcome onto the unknown. But a lot of it is also then what happened with you was the training is there. Your coach is 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 on top of it. Your your nutrition person's on top of it. Your mechanics on top of it. You're physically on top of it. Let the thoughts be what they be. Everything else is a is a controlled outcome. And as long as you stick to the plan and do what you said you were going to do, it's going to work. Yeah, and to that end, that's exactly what happened on the Friday. So uh, when I arrived at the Superdrome, it was for an evening event. And I got there a few hours before and Animeers was there to commentate and there were all these world-class sprinters to do some really awesome sprinting and entertainment beforehand. And I have never felt so relaxed and enjoy. I enjoyed every part of it. My whole family came. You came. And so many people I knew made an effort to come. Then there stands were chock-a-block full of people. I mean, I've never come in front of that many people in my life. I mean, professional male cyclists do on a regular basis. But we we don't get that opportunity as female athletes very often. And I just felt great. Music was playing. The music I'd put up there, we started. I, I felt awesome the whole time. Uh, with about 10 minutes to go, I remember thinking, okay, let's see if I can crack 47 kilometres and let's go, let's, let's go. And I felt like I was saying my legs were going, let's go, but nothing changed. I kept riding the same pace. I rode 186 laps of the velodrome and every single one of them was in within 0.1 of a second. So, like, I was a metronome. And... I may not be many things. I don't have a lot of physiological talent, but I am consistent, relentless, and uh, that they are my skills. You know, I, I can. So this is why it was the best event for me. And and was that the thing that you were uh, reminding yourself of? Were you replacing the negative self talk with a positive affirmation, or were you just noticing it, letting it go? I was noticing it, letting it go, and I was smiling sometimes inwardly, sometimes outwardly. I accidentally gave a thumbs up to my coach, and he looked really annoyed. Like, what are you putting your thumb up for? It just decreases your CDA coefficient of drag and makes you laugh. But, oh, whatever. <laughs> uh, so I really thoroughly enjoyed the whole experience, yeah. So we're talking about an, an, an elite uh, event, uh, which is, you know, there's you and you're the only person I know in the world that's ever, ever tried this and there's currently one other person in the world that took it off you. Uh, so there's very, very, it's like two in seven billion people can do this. Um, yet everyone listening to this is probably not going to face something as, as massive in their life, but relatively to them, they are going to face something massive in their life. What would you say to people who are listening who are like, well, this all sounds fantastic, but she's an elite athlete. Um, I'm just trying to get to F45 twice a week, um, but shit gets in the way. What would you say to those people? I think any, as you've outlined, any type of behaviour change is hard. You know, I've never been a smoker. And I see people smoking outside hospitals when they're attached to IV poles and they're wearing a hospital gown. And that just says to you not only how chemically powerful the addiction to nicotine is, but how societally and um, routine it is ingrained in our body. We think of, I'm agitated, I need a cigarette. Or I've woken up in the morning, I need a cigarette. So quitting smoking is extraordinarily hard. And some people say, I just went cold turkey and, it, and it's hard. And other people say, I've quit nine times and I keep going back and then this happens and that happens. So what I love about the job that I have and the medicine I get to practice is that idea of conversations with people where you ask them, it's called motivational interviewing, how can I make some sort of contribution to your efforts to change? And I had a woman the other day who's quite overweight. She's extremely busy working two jobs and she's got five kids and we said, well, where, where do we start? Why don't we set a goal? Then we'd work out how would we get there? What happens when you relapse? What, you know, what happens when you don't go to the gym for three weeks? Again, coming back to that, don't be too hard on yourself and say, oh, well, I guess I'm really crap at exercise, so I won't do it ever again. You just go, okay, I missed it for three weeks. Time to get back on the wagon. So it's about taking, sometimes it's a little bit about taking the emotion out of it. And the other thing is sometimes, and this is what you learn from sport, is that Sometimes I feel there's too much, particularly in social media, a fair bit of rhetoric around motivation and inspiration. 
most athletes don't want to train every day. They say they do, but they're motivated to do so because uh, they've got competition this weekend, they're being paid to, um, they might lose a contract if they don't, they might gain weight if they don't. There's lots of external forces to contribute to them needing to go training. But trust me, most people don't wake up and go, oh, it's raining, it's four degrees, I've got to go do six hours on the bike, I can't wait. <laughs> so don't wait to be motivated to go do F45. Just get your kit ready and put it there in the morning and set the alarm and say, oh, well, I'm probably going to feel better after I've done it. There's that idea of, you know, delayed gratification. That's actually what health is. Health's delayed gratification. It's kind of short-term pain for long-term gain. I'm going to feel better after I've done it because there's the momentum of being able to keep an exercise routine going is easier after, I think, 10 days. If you get 10 days done, it's pretty easy to keep going. But you only need two days of not working out or not eating right, and it's like that's it. It's, it's almost impossible to break escape velocity. Absolutely. And you know this too. We can present people with information saying, guess what? People with depression and anxiety feel less shit if they exercise every day. Or people who reduce their waist circumference from 100 centimetres to 90 feel more energetic and can pick their kids up at the park. But maybe until you've experienced it yourself firsthand, you don't really believe it. You still think, yeah, but that's Osher. He's he's making time to go on Zwift or he, he makes time to commute. You think, I've seen pictures of you. Sometimes you commute in the in the dark after shooting, you know, TV all day long. Think, yeah. That's not the easier choice. The easier choice is to get in a car. Um, oh, I've, but, oh, I've been taking the easier choice, Bridie, and this is the this is a really, uh, you know, the, the tricky thing that's happening with me at the moment is that um, in the last... I don't know how many months, but I've been playing around with my medication dosage at the moment and uh, the kind of medications I'm on, there's always uh, uh, – it's a balancing act between benefits and side effects. And and right now I'm trying to minimise the side effects side of things, but I'm also trying to minim- – that also means I minimise the benefits of them. And, and so uh, decreasing the dosage has led me to – I have to be more on point as far as um, meditating every day and just catching myself if I find myself a little uh, too agitated or or heading off any kind of agitation or excitement a little early and just calming myself down. Um, but, you know, the benefits are um, that, you know, it, it's kind of nice to kind of feel life a bit more. Um, one of the other side effects that, that sucks is um, the weight gain. And I... I'm, I'm able to be on the on the meds that I'm on. It quietens my brain down enough that I can get a lot of really good work done, which is really nice. But unfortunately, um, I, I just put on weight so fast when I'm on on these meds, and unfortunately, it gets so demotivating because I am now I we just, the other day. So Audrey and I travelled for the Bachelor uh, finale uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we were weighing the luggage. You know how you do that thing where you stand on the scale and then you pick up the bag. <laughs> yes. Right. So I we found and an old scale. Yeah, yeah, it is. Do the maths. Yeah. So I found an <laughs> old scale that was in a cupboard here in the house, and I was I had to adjust it because when he laid it down, it was already on ten kilos. So I thought, well, this clearly isn't calibrated. So I adjusted it down to zeroed it out. And then I jumped on it. And went. I can't be right. That's ninety kilos. That's ridiculous. Pass me the bag. Oh yeah. Okay, then 107. Okay, this is a 17-kilo bag. Okay, fine. Pfft, that scale's wrong, though. Anyway, Friday, we, we get to the hotel, um, and the hotel's got a double digital readout, super fresh, brand new, still got the plastic on it scale, and I jump on and I'm 90.8. Two days later, I'm 93. Now, a breakfast buffet was great. Um, but I haven't, I haven't been 93 in 25 years. And that's so confronting. It's so confronting for me. And I don't know what to do about it. Um, and it's really full is it on. the number? Yeah, it is. It's the number and it's also the clothes in my closet that I just don't even bother getting out because I know, ah, I'm not going to fit them. You know, I look at photos yeah. of myself when I was uh, – and, you know, this is the worst because I was off meds at the time. I look at photos of myself when I was off meds and I was 75, 74, 75. Um, Were you healthy? Yeah, I was great. Clear bloods, everything was groovy. Um, not in my head, though. 
Oh, okay. So from the neck down, awesome. Yeah, everything was fine <laughs> from the neck down. <laughs> but yeah, yeah so I'm, interesting. It kind of it kind of sucks, man. It 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 really sucks. Um, it's not as bad as when I was on the antipsychotics. That was that was a whole other story. That was like a kilo a week um, that I was I was putting on. Um, Can I ask you? Do you think that's related to um, uh, the effect on your basal metabolic rate? And so you are literally burning less calories as you're existing and so you're gaining weight? Or does it modify your appetite or does it change when you're hungry? How would you, how would you attribute the weight gain to the medication? Like what would be the relationship? I think there's a bit um, because I have uh, OCD, as the, as the meds, the weight gain effect of the meds comes down, unfortunately then the, the compulsions creep up. And so I'm kind of battling, you know, I, I'm, mm. I'm kind of battling that, um, which, which kind of sucks. But yeah, the number, the number is so, so scary. And, and plus, you know, I'm, you know, I've got this fantastic job that I love and, uh, I get to, you know, <laughs> get to go to very special tailors who will specially make special suits for me. So I don't look so fat. Perfect. Your suits are terrific. Give them yeah. a big thumbs up. Well, it's funny isn't it? because if you look at, um, you know, as you know, in your industry, work comes and goes and it can be, you know, famine or feast and all those yeah. sorts of things. And if, if you describe to anyone, oh, this, this is my current employment situation and the yeah. commuting I do and your commutes are often, yeah, one country to another or one state to another or one time zone. I mean, yeah. you're doing it sounds and seems as though there's there's so many great things happening and that's full gas at the moment and that means you're not always all able I reckon to get the balance and I mean this is what I loved about your conversation with Mia Friedman and I've listened to other interviews that she's done in and around her new book that idea that the balance part is a myth if you want to be awesome at anything I mean I wasn't balanced in my preparation for the hour if you've just had a baby your life isn't balanced you're on looking after that baby and other things fall away for a while so this current lifestyle or your ability to work may not be the same for 40 years it's what it is now and not not ideal for your washboard abs but (laughs) then if you weren't working and you were just you know larry emdering and getting on the cover of men's health for your 50th which is heaps of time away by the way i just want to say there's still seven years i appreciate um, that that you know yeah (laughs) I'm going to try and see if I can get on the women's cover at the, in the same year. Um, that you, you know, you have to be kind to yourself, though, so yeah? Yeah. Yeah, and Audrey's super great about it. Audrey's very kind um, and very, very supportive, and uh, that's really, really nice. But, you know, there's a whole cupboard of suits that I can't fit. Yep. And, you know, that. That kind of that kind of sucks that I you know still have you st- still got this thing stuck in the back of your head from um, I mean I was you know I was quite you, we knew each other when we were teenagers I was quite big when I was a teenager and I was in um, Weight Watchers when I was eight which is like AA for fatties uh, so it's kind of always been a thing and I guess as well as that it kind of transports me back to the the, the 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 bullied teenage years. I think that's the other thing that's also really triggering about it. Mm, that makes all the sense. And but you know, we also have this number. We also have this number of like what t-shirts I'm not going to buy or what size trouser I'm not going to buy. And then Audrey came home I with like all these t- Seinfeld episode. <laughs> yeah, yes. Like, no, 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 no. I don't. I don't know. No, I'm a 32, I'm a and that's waist. it. <laughs> exactly. I'm a 32, and that's it. And then. And then, uh, you know, I just bit the bullet. I had to get bigger pants. And then Audrey, Audrey came home with all these T-shirts the other day and they're really comfy. It's because they're XL. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, big T-shirts are in. Well, thankfully, that's also very helpful. That's also very helpful. I've got a couple of patients who have three wardrobes. You know, one guy I know, um, he'll say, this is fat me, this is okay me, and this is crazy fit me, and I just have to modify, you know, depending on, um, I, look, I think there are a lot of people, uh, a lot of women too, you know, gain weight through pregnancy and then they lose some of it but not all of it and then they get themselves to a point where you think, oh, wow, how did I get to be 45 and I'm now 85 kilos and I was 60 on my wedding day. Now wedding day's 
never anyone's normal weight, of course, as we all no. know, because there's evil women in the world measuring your dress and saying, how much more weight do you want to lose? Yeah. Um, so I, I think that we are getting too much <clears throat> We're getting too much information that we can access at our fingertips of what we should look like. And I think the other thing that's really interesting um, that I find really negative is the association of appearance with exercise. So I know a lot of incredible athletes whose bodies don't look like Fitzbo models. You know, you can be an incredible runner or triathlete. You may not have abs. You might have um, quite wide hips and not huge quads, or you might have funny skinny little arms, or you might have bigger arms than average. Everybody is beautiful. Every shape um, is performing a function, and if you're the best athlete you can be, the actual appearance of your body is so irrelevant. And then there's this whole section, I think, of the community who look at fitness models and they think, that's too hard, that's so far away, I can never get there, so I won't bother at all. I'm never going to have abs or have those kinds of legs or that sort of tan or those sorts of breasts. So what's the point? And that's what I think is damaging about the the way we associate exercise and, um, you know, photographs of us at the gym looking awesome. And then again, I think, so follow different people on Instagram, you know, follow Ashley Graham, this absolutely gorgeous swimsuit model who just happens to be um, much bigger than the average woman. You know, she's plus size. Yeah. Follow people who make you feel good. So I might have to unfollow all the, you know, extraordinarily ripped guys in their twenties who live on the Gold Coast that can do one on handstands while they uh, while yes. they walk backwards upstairs. Yes, yes, all those CrossFit models that are drinking green smoothies. Those guys are super healthy, but they've also might have had a genetic predisposition to being leaner. I mean, you know this too. Some men are really get really lean. Some men don't. Some women can get really lean. Some don't. That, what are you, are you saying? You are you saying that? that. My, are you saying that my com, my 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 com- combination of uh, Eastern European and Lithuanian uh, <laughs> genetics. <laughs> I respond differently I, I to potatoes. <laughs> exactly. So only have chips every second day. Never have them every day. That would be my, oh my medical God. advice. We had chips the other night. We went to the the Vivid <laughs> thing. Uh, my brother. Oh, uh, my, oh yeah, my brother had a. Um, he he works for a, a, a company that had a, a symposium, and it was really fascinating. It was about the future of mobility. Uh, it was really interesting. And afterwards, we went to this Italian restaurant in the Rocks, and I had the best fries I've ever had in my life. Uh, hot, Good. crunchy, almost hard on the outside, pretty much liquid potato on the inside. Oh, it, it was an. You can't pass that up. You can't pass that up. How can you not do that? But and then, anyway, you're vegan, so you need to capitalise on all these good veggies and sometimes they come <laughs> delivered to you in a different form, you know, deep fried with salt. And- <laughs> but then but then I get a case of the fuck it's Friday. This is the problem is because I go, oh, fuck it, I'll just eat heaps of shit today. But then that yeah. happens every day. See, that's that idea again coming back to um, when De Clemente and Prochesco with these two psychologists that looked at behaviour change, they devised a behaviour change cycle that looked at different phases when people – where people are when they're trying to modify behaviour. And they talked about pre-contemplation, which I'm not even thinking about it. Contemplation, a lot of people are there. Preparation, you know, I bought the the nicotine patches or I joined the gym. And then action is where you're changing your behaviour. And then ideally we all get to maintenance and you've maintained that change. You've, You've quit smoking or whatever. But what they identified by surveying hundreds of thousands of people is that, in fact, relapse is part of behaviour change. Everybody relapses. You relapse by eating a whole packet of Tim Tams when you said, I'm not going to eat the Tim Tams, for example. So instead of then saying, oh, well, I'm crap at diets or I'm crap at sticking to something, you can just go, oh, that's a bugger. Anyway, get back on the cycle. Get back into the preparation phase or the action phase and don't turn this into something that means something, a.k.a. I'm worthless, I have no ability, I have no stamina, I've got no commitment, I'm bad at the gym or bad at CrossFit. Ah, what was the two words you used? Uh, that's interesting. No, what did you use when you were having a sweat come down your face and the... Um... Yeah, I think I might have... Yeah, that's interesting. Anyway, back to, you know... Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's important. That's interesting. Just notice it. Notice it. Because, yeah, I get it. I get into the loop of self-flagellation then. Oh, yeah, I yeah, love of course. it. Love it. Also, if you've done it on the Tuesday, if you said to yourself, okay, it's a whole new week, I'm going to try and eat healthy and not have not have any crisps, you know, that I have when I get mm. home from work and it's 5 p.m. And you do that on a Tuesday, 
you then, it's really interesting what you said, and I hear this all the time, people then go, oh, well, the diet is blown or my strategy is blown, so now I may as well just not only finish the whole packet but eat chips every day for the rest of the week instead of just saying to yourself, hang on a sec, I kind of went off the rails, if you like, I'm going to get back on and Wednesday it's going to be a no-chip day or Thursday. I said I was going to have three alcohol-free days a week. I'll have to just make it Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Them's the rules, you know? Right. Yeah, but and and that what did you say the delayed gratification uh, when you try and work that in as well? Like just imagine how good I'll feel on Saturday morning if I don't drink on Saturday Saturday night Sunday yeah, morning yeah. if I don't drink on Saturday night. Yeah. I was talking with um, one of the medical receptionists at work about um, about chocolate and about in clinics and hospitals all over the place. People love giving nurses and doctors chocolates. They sit in the ward or they people bring slices and lovely mm. cakes and things in as gifts, which is very generous but not always very helpful. This patient had brought in beautiful uh, chocolate caramel slice and it was sitting in the tea room and this receptionist said, um, you know, I'm not having any. And, and the receptionist said, yes, but it's beautiful. It's chocolate caramel slice. And, you know, she's overweight. She talks about how she wants to be healthier and lose some weight. And her niece said to her, yeah, but there's always going to be chocolate caramel slice. This isn't the last slice in the world. You can just not have it today and it'll be gone. That's okay. You will be exposed in this wonderful first world that we live in. You'll be able to find and source chocolate caramel slice in the future if you really, really need it. But just because it's there on the table, you don't have to eat it. And I think that that's a big part of it too is like those great studies. I was talking about this with my partner who's got a ter- terrible chocolate addiction. You know they do those psychological studies with kids where they say, I'm going to give you a marshmallow. If you don't eat it in minutes, I'm going to give you a second marshmallow. <laughs> and I was saying this to Nick and he said, oh, I'd eat the marshmallow. And then I'd say, give me another one. And I'd say, no, 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 you've got to be able to delay your gratification. And, he's, and there are people who just go, no, nah, I'm going to eat it. I can't wait. I've got to eat it now. I've got to eat the whole block of chocolate. I've got to eat the whole packet of chips. I need it now just because. Yeah, and and this is the reason why I try not to have chocolate uh, in the house. Because yeah, don't have it in the house. That's the key. That's the key. Unfortunately, the chocolate. And you've got to secretly eat it when she's not home. Uh, the, chocolate, home yeah. the chocolate is in the house and I know exactly where it is. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you need a safe or some sort of uh, alligator to defend it. <laughs> the cupboard alligator. I'll sell yeah, yeah, it. yeah. I'll sell it on Studio 10 in the mornings and we'll make millions. Um, Bridie, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much for, for speaking with me today. My pleasure, absolutely. It's always, always good to talk to you. Um, have a, I'm, I'm hoping that you're enjoying the writing that you are doing. I am. I'm on the Zwift. I'm loving it. Super incognito. Oh, okay. So let's talk about that for just one second. You, um, so you've, you've recently got on the, uh, the indoor training Zwift scenario when I've had Steve Beckett on the show. What are your I listened thoughts? to that interview. That was fascinating. Oh, look, I, I rode once a year ago and then um, as a sort of a trial and then I just started doing it in the last few weeks. Um, it's brilliant because if it's dark and cold and wet and uh, particularly when the weather's not ideal, but I love it. I mean, it's clearly the software's evolved enormously. There are group rides. There are training sessions. There's choices that you can make about what kind of workload you want to do. Um, I'm not cert- certainly using it the same way as social media and I'm not co- communicating with people on a regular basis. I'm kind of just using it as a motivational tool and I'm loving it. Yeah. it's. Uh, I, I really should should get back on it. I've just, I, I bought myself a new bike and it it's, it's a bit harder to get on and off the trainer because I've got to put a through spike through the, through the thing. Uh, but uh, yeah, I really do. Um, I really do enjoy it and I should get, I should get back on it. But um, I'm coming off a week of some sort of excellent virus shoulds, scenario. Remember? Say again? There's no shoulds. There's no shoulds. <laughs> There's no shoulds. Should and shouldn't just makes you feel bad about yourself and it never makes you change your behaviour. I should go to the gym. I really shouldn't smoke. I, you know, don't say it. Just, what are you doing just instead? say I'll try and do it when I'm healthy. I'll try and do it when I'm healthier. All right. Well, I, I'm a little healthier after my week of viral uh, laying on my ass. So uh, I, promised Audrey that I, wouldn't, I promised Audrey that I wouldn't run today. Uh, I'm, I'm allowed to do I'm because what happens I get too excited and then I just go for it and then I end up sick again <laughs> that's me shaking my head <laughs> yeah I know I know so I've, I promised already I'll just do I'll just do an hour of yoga and and that'll be it today why are you putting on your patronizing voice it's not my patronizing it's not my patronizing <laughs> voice it's my it's my calm <laughs> voice it's my not running in the park and wanting to do burpees voice it's, I'll just okay. do an hour of yoga and that'll be fine. 
That's what I'm saying. I'm saying it to myself. <laughs> Namaste. Namaste. All right. Thanks, Bridie. Love you. <laughs> See you. Bye. That was Dr. Bridie O'Donnell. If you liked what she had to say, if you heard what she said and you went, you know what, I do feel a bit motivated. I am going to make, uh, make a move this afternoon. Let her know on Twitter. She'd get a kick out of finding that out. At Bridie underscore OD is her um, Twitter address. Let her know that you heard her on the show. She'd love it. Um, I've got to go. I've got to give this rental car back until we talk next time. Thank you so much for listening. Sleep well. Dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.